Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social, and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy, and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. Just a quick content warning about today's episode. It contains discussion of violence, including sexual violence, and descriptions of war and armed conflict that some people may find disturbing. Today we talk to Stacey Badenwell, Principal Lecturer in the School of Law at the University of Greenwich. We're talking to her about her book, Gender and the Violences of War and Armed Conflict, which asks the question, is it more dangerous to be a woman? The book was published last month by Emerald and is available to everyone open access as an ebook, which you'll find in the link in the show notes. So, welcome to the podcast, Stacey. Thank you for having me, Helen. Let's start with, what was the motivation for the research in the book and for your research project? So the last publication, the last article I wrote before starting the book was about the securitization and fetishization of wartime rape and sexual violence in Syria. So just to explain, securitization and the fetishization of wartime rape and sexual violence involves the selective and sensationist accounts of rape and sexual violence, particularly against women and girls. And this happens at the expense of other types of conflict violence. So here what happens is rape and sexual violence are identified as the most dangerous forms of conflict violence that pose an existential threat to certain populations. So what I argued in this article is that not only does this obscure the complexity of wartime rape and sexual violence and the conflicts within which they occur, but it also marginalises other types of violence that take place within conflict zones. But I think also one of the things that I picked up on was that it also excludes the experiences of boys and men, because within this securitization narrative, it is women and girls who are identified as the most vulnerable to this security threat. This idea, this kind of securitization and fetishization of wartime rape and sexual violence was crystallized in the statement that was made by Major General Patrick Khmer, who was the former United Nations force commander for the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And he said, it is perhaps more dangerous to be a woman than a soldier in armed conflict. So the question that forms the title of my book is taken from this statement. And whilst it's not explicitly stated, for me, the implicit assumption in that statement is that the soldier is male. So the point being that civilian women are more at risk than male soldiers during war and armed conflict. I wanted to unpack the uh, accuracy of this statement by Patrick Khmer and to consider what are the implications of adopting this viewpoint. Are women really more at risk? And if so, how? But I also wanted to ask, or think about the risks and dangers men and boys face. And before we get into some of the questions about the findings in your book, what do we mean by the terms violence and war and armed conflict? So for me, in order to really interrogate that statement by Patrick Khmer, it was really important for me to consider the multiple, diverse and complex nature of the violence that takes place within and beyond the conflict zone. So the types of violence that I examine in the book include interpersonal violence, structural violence, institutional violence, by that I mean violence within the military, 
state violence, as well as genocidal and reproductive violence and structural and interpersonal violences that can be linked to extreme droughts caused by climate change. Relatedly, given the broad case studies considered in the book, which are both historical and contemporary, I thought it was really important to acknowledge the difference between war and armed conflict. So the term war is used to describe old wars, such as the First and Second World Wars, which are based on geopolitical and ideological goals and They were fought with armed soldiers of national military institutions and they were financed by taxation and they were centralised and involved a labour force. New wars, which are often referred to as civil wars or armed conflict, involve fragments of official armed forces, paramilitary groups, private security companies, warlords um, and extremist terrorist groups. And they are often fought in the name of ethnic, religious or tribal identities. And they use guerrilla warfare and counterinsurgency methods. And they're often funded by violent and criminal activities that include things like the extraction, sale and illegal transport of value commodities, looting, pillaging and kidnapping, or say the exchange of stolen goods, money laundering and arms sales at cross-border points. Another major difference actually between old and new wars is that in the case of the latter, so new wars or armed conflicts, the state often deliberately targets civilians. So by the end of the 1990s, civilians made up 90% of all casualties in armed conflict, which is different to what happened during old wars. It's something that you lay out really clearly in your book that violence in war, it takes place on, on different levels. Can you explain a bit about what these levels are and and how they interact? Sure. So throughout the book, in all of these examples that I consider, I analyse them at the macro, meso and micro levels. So the macro level refers to large-scale, overarching social, cultural, political and or economic processes, interactions or structures. And these operate at both the global and state level. The MISO level refers to institutions. So, for example, the military, it also refers to the law, and it also refers to government organisations. And at the micro level, this deals with small-scale interactions and processes, often examining behaviour at the individual level. So let me give you an example of the DRC, so the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we can trace a complex relationship between economic globalisation, hegemonic masculinity, global hypercapitalism and the conflict-related sexual violence that takes place on the ground. So at the macro level, in the context of economic globalisation, transnational corporations compete for access to minerals that are contained within the DRC. Fighters on the ground use rape to terrorise and displace civilian populations to gain access to these minerals. These minerals are then sold to national and transnational companies who are involved in this illegal trade. So the use of rape and sexual violence as a weapon of war is encouraged at the MISO level through the military institution, where the performance of a violent heterosexual masculinity is required. And at the micro level, marginalised men in the Congo use rape and sexual violence to subvert their subordinated position within the gender hierarchy. So a lot of the men are poor and uneducated. And in Congolese society according to localised discourses of hegemonic heterosexual masculinity, they are supposed to have physical, economic and social power. So various ethnic, cultural and socio-economic constraints prevent them from achieving this ideal. So they then turn to hyper-masculinity within the conflict zone to resolve this tension. 
So this enactment of hypermasculinity, which involves aggression, excessive toughness and sexual violence, offers these marginalised men the opportunity to take advantage of the chaos of war and to challenge their marginal position within the gender hierarchy. So as we can see in this example, rape is used as a tactic at all of these levels, so at the macro, meso and micro level. And that example, actually, that really clearly shows why focusing on one or two types of violence and events when it's such a more complex picture with all these interactions is a bit risky. So what are the perceptions and assumptions around gender in the in the context of war and armed conflict? And how do these assumptions around gender feed into our understandings of war and conflict, you know, in the examples in the book from the literature and, and, and the UN Commission? So one of the key goals of this book was to challenge this gender essentialism that forms the basis of many assumptions and perceptions about war and armed conflict. Gender essentialism involves the equation of maleness with war fighting and femaleness with victimisation. So it involves biopolitical and ontological constructions of women as vulnerable, weak and in need of protection and constructions of men and boys as always and already combatants and by extension, the perpetrators of the violences of war and armed conflict. So for me, not only does this obscure the experiences of male victims, suggesting that their victimisation is ontologically and materially impossible, it also ignores female perpetrators of conflict violence. But I think one of the things that I found really problematic was this obscuring of the, the, the experiences of male victims. Because despite the evidence, which points to the deliberate and systematic targeting of civilian men and boys, historically, their experiences have just not been included within the human security framework. So as you say, some of these UN documents just does not include the experiences of men and boys. So in the book, I challenge these reductive and essentialist assumptions. First, by providing examples of women who are perpetrators of sexualized violence and torture. And second, by revealing male vulnerability, specifically the vulnerability of the penis when it is disempowered through sexualized violence. So I think it's really important to start challenging these ideas about how we see men and masculinity and start to recognize that, you know, there is a vulnerability to, to men and masculinity. And I think this acknowledgement alongside the acknowledgement that women and girls can be perpetrators, is really important for us to move beyond these kind of reductive and simplistic assumptions about who are the perpetrators and who are the victims of wartime rape and sexual violence. And what are the risks and dangers of gender-based violence for men during war and conflict? What are they at risk of? I think because certainly battle-aged men and boys are regarded as those likely to become combatants. This then places them at higher risk of violence and they are systematically targeted for execution based on this idea that they are likely to join military and, and become combatants and therefore they pose a threat to sort of enemy armed soldiers. So men, just like women and girls, are also victims and at risk of rape and sexual violence. They're also at risk of sexual torture genital mutilation and enforced sterilization through castration. Reproductive violence is violence that violates a person's reproductive autonomy or violence that is directed against an individual due to their reproductive capabilities. And genocidal violence is violence that is intended to destroy a group in whole or in part. And the definition of genocide includes this particular element, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. So here we can see the enforced sterilisation, 
through castration of men and boys is an example of reproductive and genocidal violence. Genital harm, which I discuss in one of the chapters in relation to the genocide in Darfur, can also thwart men's reproductive capabilities. And when this is enacted deliberately and systematically, as was the case in Darfur, it also counts as a form of genocide because you are trying to destroy that group by attacking men's ability to reproduce through castration or genital mutilation. So these acts of violence are both physical and symbolic. They attack men, masculinity, but also the national, ethnical, racial and religious group to which they belong. The other example that I think perhaps hasn't received as much attention, particularly in relation to male victims, is sexual exploitation and abuse. And there's been a lot of research about UN peacekeepers enacting this violence against women and girls. So this is where women and girls will provide sex in exchange for food or shelter or accommodation. I talk about this in relation to men and boys, and I talk about it in relation to the increased number of unaccompanied and separated children that we have seen applying for asylum in the European Union following the refugee crisis in Europe. And in the book, I talk about the experiences of boys who are providing sexual services in Greece in order to receive payment for accommodation and for food. It brings two questions to mind, actually. But the first question is, is that, you know, in relation, especially to boys, are we at risk of, is there a kind of ignoring of boys in this kind of literature? And at what stage do boys get considered men and when they are really still kids? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was this idea of, certainly within feminist criminology, we've talked a lot about victim perpetrators and we've we've talked about this in relation to women to understand that in a lot of cases, women who commit crimes are also victims. And one of the things that I do in the book is apply this to men and boys as well and to look at specifically male child soldiers who are committing acts of rape and sexual violence But they're also victims because if you look at the initiation processes, if you look at the ways in which they are forced to carry out these acts by their commanders, you can sort of see that they fall into this category of being both victims and perpetrators. When I was reading about this, I was really surprised by some of the statistics. So of the 63,000 unaccompanied and separated children, 89% of those were males. And many of those had then gone on to engage in these, um, they're called coerced sexual activities. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later on. But it is this idea that you provide sexual services in order to survive. Something I really appreciated in your book, you know, we talk about the perception at the UN within the literature is as women and girls of the main victims of gender-based violence within war and armed conflict. And that challenged me a little bit. I really appreciated the footnote in your introduction that you also started writing from this point of view. And this would be very much my perception as well before reading your book. And it's quite an unsettling perspective to challenge in yourself. How did that change in your perception happen? And how was it challenging your own assumptions as a woman and a feminist? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the received wisdom is that women and girls are disproportionately affected by war and armed conflict. Writers also argue, and I agree with this, that pre-existing gender inequalities are exacerbated within and beyond the conflict zone, which means that it increases females' vulnerability to various types of gender-based violence. In all of this work, women and girls are considered to be the main victims of gender-based violence prior to during and in the aftermath of war and armed conflict. 
So this then leads to the conviction that they are disproportionately affected by the violences of war and armed conflict. If, as it is noted, there is a high prevalence of violence violence against women and girls in peacetime, what does it actually mean when we say they are disproportionately affected by war? Disproportionate to what? Are we saying that they're disproportionate to women's experiences of gender-based violence during peacetime, which is already asymmetrical? So what I really want to get at in the book is on what basis do we make this claim about women and girls being disproportionately affected and with whom specifically are we comparing them to or with? I mean, do we make this claim because making up the majority of civilians during war and armed conflict, say compared with the higher numbers of male combatants, their suffering is disproportionate? But I suppose based on this logic then, that there are higher numbers of male combatants and based on their higher participation as fighters, doesn't it make more sense to assume that males make up the majority of casualties? In fact, statistics suggest that young men of military age are more likely to be killed in war, whether as combatants or as civilians. So what I'm trying to think about in the book is and ask is, does our preoccupation with the unequal experiences of women and girls during war and armed conflict diminish our ability to acknowledge the suffering of male civilians and combatants? How do we interpret their victimisation? Is there a difference between increased vulnerability to certain types of gender-based violence, which can happen to both males and females, and being disproportionately affected by war and armed conflict? And what I do in the book is that I sort of lay out this challenge or this comment on the disproportionality thesis. But I also admit that when I began writing about this topic, I also was blinded by this focus on disproportionality. I also just kind of wrote about it in this taken for granted way. But after spending more time researching and thinking about this topic, particularly when I started reading about the experiences of boys and men, I started to see that this kind of comparative quantitative analysis where you're trying to figure out who suffers more is actually short-sighted. I think a more fruitful exercise is to examine the ways in which war and armed conflict are gendered. How is suffering gendered? How does gender inform experiences of war and armed conflict rather than trying to focus on who suffers more? And I think, you know, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that women and girls do not suffer or that we don't need to take their experiences seriously. But I am suggesting we should abandon this comparative analysis where we are concerned with proving who suffers more. I think we should be asking how they suffer differently. In the abstract, this might sound like a challenging position to take. But I think once you start reading about the experiences of boys and men, And once you start reading into the examples of women as perpetrators of uh, sexual violence during war and armed conflict, then I think you start to see that the story is more complex and more nuanced. And, And then I think it becomes easier to sort of move away from this focus on disproportionality. I think, you know, the example you set out at the beginning around around the different levels in war and and the example from Darfur really shows that it's nuanced and, and complex and that actually stepping away from that assumption allows a clearer analysis of the different things going on between these different actors, different levels. And I think that's important for actually kind of for researchers to be able to solve the problem. In what ways are women's experiences of war and armed conflict different to men's? 
So the prime example that I look at in the book is this around this idea of woman as nation. So in both old and new wars, women come to represent the nation. They are regarded as the centre of gravity. So female bodies are, because of their reproductive capabilities, are regarded as the vessels through which national, ethnic, racial and religious identities are reproduced. So this is why writers use the phrase woman as nation. The idea being that men fight wars to protect women who belong to their nation. So rape is used in this context not only as an attack upon the individual female, but it's also an attack upon the nation. So enemy men will attack women who belong to the other enemy group in order to attack that state and in order to attack that nation. And this is often achieved through genocidal rape. So the one of the examples that I look at in the book is how genocidal rape was used during the Bosnian genocide. And this involved the systematic rape and enforced impregnation of Muslim and Croatian women by Serbian men. So many victims were detained in rape camps where they were repeatedly raped until they became pregnant and held captive until access to a safe abortion was no longer possible. So as noted in the genocide convention, this presents births within the group. This is because women's wombs are occupied with babies from a different ethnic group, which then results in the birth of an ethnically mixed child. And these children are often described as belonging to the enemy. So according to the logic of the woman as nation thesis, genocidal rape not only dishonours the woman, but it also dishonours the ethnic group to which she belongs. It also destroys her ethnic group because she has produced a child that is considered to belong to the enemy group. This destruction of the group is also achieved because women are ostracised, they are expelled, and so they often leave the group to which they belong, and men refuse to engage in marriage or sexual relationships with these, I'm using um, quotation marks here, spoiled women. So again, that destroys the group because you have expelled, you have ostracised these women, and so this idea of woman as nation places women at particular risks of this type of violence. The examples that I draw upon to explore this are the Holocaust and the 1971 Bangladesh Liberation War. And I think something that also brings to my mind is how that violence is also delivered generationally, because that gender-based violence affects the group of women subjected to it and it affects their children. Yes. And I think, you know, that also is something that we see happening from the Holocaust. You know, we talk about the generational effect of that violence. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, yeah, that's one of the sort of the next project for me is to look at this idea of transgenerational trauma, exactly as you say, from the children who were born from genocidal rape in Rwanda and in the former Yugoslavia. And yeah, to look at how they, exactly that, that they are regarded as the enemy. They are completely expelled from their communities. Is that what we mean by structural violence? Is that a type of structural violence? Not how I've sort of phrased it in the book. So for me, structural violence is a form of structural inequality or discrimination that maintains women's subordinate position. So the way I've conceptualised structural violence is that it refers to women's lack of access to employment, education, welfare, healthcare, or social and economic and political infrastructure. So one of the examples that I look at of structural violence in the book is forced prostitution. I do 
actually look at a lack of access to reproductive health care, so a lack of access to safe abortion as a form of structural violence, which might fit in to what we were just talking about in relation to genocidal rape. But certainly the main example I look at is this idea of forced prostitution. And what I find in some of the UN documents is that the definition of violence against women acknowledges that force doesn't have to involve coercion from a third party. Force can also refer to a lack of alternative means of survival. So here, force can relate to the fact that a woman is unemployed or that she's living in poverty and that this then forces the woman into prostitution. We need to move beyond interpersonal examples of violence against women and girls and consider these structural forms of violence. I think that also kind of raises a question for me around who we consider as the enactors of structural violence, because we've mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, there's issues with, say, NGO peacekeepers coercing women into sex with that, you know, exchange of sex for food. And in your Darfur example, the corporations are also implicated in this construct of violence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, One of the things that I do in the book, which raises this kind of age old, rather divisive debate amongst feminists, is look at this idea of agency and argue, you know, with these women who are engaging in these coerced sexual activities and survival sex, do they exercise agency? You know, are they victims? Who are the perpetrators in those examples? And how easy is it for us to sort of simply you know, see these women as not making any choices and not having any agency. And so I do sort of unpack the various feminist debates. And I, I think it's very difficult to particularly talk about other people's experience with, without having experienced it yourself, despite the fact that these women are selling sex, you know, in order to get food or to get shelter or to get money that they are still consenting. So for some feminists that they find this um, zero tolerance approach that the UN has adopted in their various documents that they've produced, they find that hugely problematic. So they find the term sexual exploitation and abuse, which I just talked about in relation to men and boys, they find that term really problematic because they don't see it as a form of abuse or exploitation they see these women as exercising agency and that they have consented which I think is problematic. I think there's something around a a set of women having not had that experience arguing over what to call that experience when the people who have had that experience they have the right to dictate what that experience was. I mean again is the problem categorization or is the problem helping resolve these situations for women yes exactly yeah I think that's it is you get so caught up in the terminology and often then you forget the subject matter that you're actually discussing which is the fact that women and girls men and boys are selling sex in order to survive during war and armed conflict yes and to actually to speak about gender what about gender and masculinities and, and femininities within the military itself now how are these constructed and enacted So here we go back to this gender essentialism again, and we see this kind of reproduction of the inherent maleness of war fighting and war making. Militarised masculinity expects men to be tough and aggressive. The military is where they learn to fight and kill for their woman, for their nation. Comparing that then to kind of idealised notions of militarised femininity, which Schoberg and Gentry state, you know, expects a woman to be as capable as a male soldier, but as vulnerable as a civilian woman, a civilian woman, sorry. 
so a militarized woman is can be tough but she can't be violent she's supposed to be brave but she's not supposed to be self-sufficient she is masculine but not too above femininity and she is frail but she's not afraid and i think they they sort of argue that ultimately even though she is a soldier and she's fighting for a country at bottom line we still expect women in the military to be these kind of innocent and beautiful souls so it becomes difficult then to understand uh, women's role in the military and yet we have seen an increasing number of women join the military so it would seem that they like men fight for and protect the nation and yet what i sort of write about in the book is that this expectation that women perform idealized militarized femininity which is i think the key thing of that is that they are still expected to be innocent and these beautiful souls to me the fact that they are expected to perform this underscores that what is required of female soldiers is very different from what is expected from male soldiers i mean i think the biggest issue is this kind of promotion of a heterosexual violent masculinity something that clearly isn't promoted for women within the military and that is why i chose to focus on the example of women who committed acts of sexual violence and torture at abu ghraib yes the images uh, of lindy england at abu ghraib i remember those being in the news how does gender play out in the involvement of female soldiers in these acts of violence and how did this contradict notions of femininity to try and understand all of this and as you say sort of resolve the kind of contradiction of women's involvement in this as i draw on feminist and visual criminology to unpack the three women who are involved in these violences so meganable lindy england as you say and sabrina harman but i think in order to really understand what happened there is that you have to place this violence against the backdrop of american exceptionalism and the war on terror more broadly so in the book i argue that the war on terror was a hypermasculine orientalist pursuit to remasculinize the US empire following the 9/11 attacks. So basically this was about masculinities of empire. I try and consider how women's involvement in this sexualized violence featured within this kind of enactment of American foreign policy that had been based on this idea of masculinities of empire. And I do so by drawing on my idea of war on terror femininity. because what i wanted to argue that in the broader context of the war on terror it was it almost tolerated and accepted that women could engage in violence and sexual violence because they were engaging in this violence against this kind of terrorist other so the image that i use in the book is the image of james grainer and sabrina harman it's the one where they pose behind a pyramid of naked iraqi prisoners at abu ghraib and if you if people remember Grainer is sort of standing at the top. Sabrina is below him in the image and then below her in a pyramid are the naked Iraqi men who are piled on top of one another. This image can map onto Connell's gender hierarchy which consists of these four types of masculinity. As the most dominant form of masculinity, hegemonic masculinity is always positioned above the others. Then we have complicit, marginal and subordinated masculinities. And then below that we have femininities in the image we have grainer at the top his arms are folded he's relaxed he's playful he represents the patriarchy and hegemonic masculinity then we have sabrina and in the image she's sort of crouching underneath grainer so she's both kind of literally and figuratively placed below him in the image so she represents femininity 
or in this context, my sort of reimagined notion of war on terror femininity. In this particular context, femininity is placed above subordinated and inferior masculinities. These are actually in the form of these naked hooded Iraqi prisoners. These are actually in the image placed below Sabrina. So what I'm arguing them in the book is that this image at once kind of reproduces Connell's gender hierarchy, but at the same time, it challenges it. So unlike in the gender hierarchy, where women are always and already inferior to all types of masculinity, Sabrina is actually in this image placed above the inferior Iraqi men, but she still remains kind of subordinate to the white Western man represented by Grainer. So what I'm arguing is that in order to resolve the paradox of violent women in this particular example, is that what we see is a kind of temporary, context-specific enactment of hypermasculinity that does rely on war on terror femininity. So in this particular kind of battle against the enemy other or the terrorist other, it is acceptable for women to engage in violent behaviour. I think in terms of thinking about how the media responded to this and, and tried to resolve the paradox of the of violent women or women engaging in examples of sexualized violence. Certainly there were lots of conversations about Lindy England and in these media accounts she was demonized, sexualized and infantilized and was believed to have acted under the influence of her then boyfriend Charles Grainer. So the idea was that England had been coerced and manipulated into these committing these acts of violence which then obviously removes her agency. She was also presented in the media as not woman. So lots of the media stories of Lyndon focused on her gender or more accurately, her distortion of it. And I particularly like this quote by Holland who said, she was represented as being inappropriately masculine as well as inappropriately female, a gender abnormality with one foot in each of these seemingly dichotomous categories. And what was interesting to me is that these portrayals of women as masculine, as trying to be like men, are reminiscent of the views of Lombroso and Ferrero, who in their kind of 1893 book, The Criminal Women, argued that the true biological nature of a woman is antithetical to crime. So therefore, not only is a female criminal abnormal, she is biologically like, you know, more like a man. So put simply, the argument is that a woman who is capable of aggression and violence becomes seen as a masculine woman as other. And this kind of characterization refuses to take seriously or acknowledge women's violence. I try to sort of resolve this tension by offering my example of war on terror femininity to argue that we don't need to rely on these media representations which demonize or masculinize women. We can look at this in a very particular specific context and argue that in this kind of broader war on terror in the context of American exceptionalism this type of violence was to a certain extent tolerated by women. There were many American soldiers in those pictures but Lindy England is the one we all remember and the one that the, the media focused on the most and had the most problems kind of reconciling with our notions of femininity. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think when Lindy England stands trial, she's actually eight months pregnant. How do we understand that? And how do we reconcile those images of her as a pregnant woman standing trial for these crimes? The problem the media had 
was around how to categorise Lindy England, how to explain her involvement rather than looking at the actual issue, which was that these detainees were being tortured and dehumanised. Ultimately, I think people thought there was something necessary and acceptable to that violence in the broader context of this war on terror and American exceptionalism, where we just thought, yes, anything is kind of necessary in this fight against terrorism. In this context, women were seen as good enough to kind of subordinate and emasculate these men. They were sort of almost not not used as props, because I don't want to deny their agency in taking part in these actions. But it's interesting to me that that adds even more insult to injury, if you like, that for those Iraqi detainees, the fact that this violence is carried out by white Western women, I think, you know, has has more of an impact. And so as much as we were shocked, and I think if you look at traditional explanations, a lot of them fail to kind of explain it. I argue that if we do sort of adopt this idea of a war on terror femininity, which is very context specific, it kind of helps us to understand why and how this violence happened and why not everybody was as shocked by the violence. And one of the key messages in your book is around this link between climate change, extreme weather and gender. How does climate change and extreme weather events play into the causes and consequences of armed conflicts? And what role does gender play in this relationship? So yes, well, you, you um, draw on two examples to examine this link between climate change and conflict. So I look at Syria and Darfur. And so I look at extreme droughts in both cases that have been caused by climate variability. And in Syria, I look at how this led to increases in poverty. And in Darfur, I look at how that led to clashes over natural resources. So in the case of Syria, I look at this in relation to illicit economies. And in Darfur, I look at it in relation to the genocidal and reproductive violence that was committed against Darfuri males. So for, for Syria, what I found in the research was that as a result of the drought, which was caused by climate variability, had a huge impact on sort of livestock and agriculture and left at least a million Syrians food insecure and unemployment levels increased exponentially, leaving millions of Syrians in living in abject poverty. So what happens then is that within this context, the informal or illicit economy flourishes And in conflict zones, there are three types of illicit economies. There's the coping, combat and criminal. Coping economies involve survival, whereas combat and criminal economies are driven by military objectives and profit-seeking activities. So as a result of extreme poverty and a lack of employment opportunities, which came as a result of the drought, a huge number of Syrians were forced to work in this informal economy. And this can be broken down by gender. So men from the various warring factions in Syria turn to combat and criminal activities. So they engage in activities such as kidnapping, trafficking for sexual purposes, the smuggling of oil, um, the smuggling of women and girls, whereas Syrian women will resort or resorted to coping economies uh, in the form of survival sex. So in the absence of their husbands who are missing or who have been killed during the conflict, women become the head of the household. And faced with this kind of increasing lack of employment opportunities, which were exacerbated by the drought in Syria, women then resort to providing sexual services in exchange for food and accommodation for their families. I mean, going back to this idea of being challenged by this perception of women as the main victims of gender-based violence during war and armed conflict. I think something that the book makes clear is that 
it's really important from a research perspective and from a policymaker perspective to take that step back and consider gender as a whole because otherwise you're only getting half of the picture of any of these examples and it just shows me that actually this focus on women may potentially lead to more harm for women because policymakers not understanding the full picture or not having that concept of gender as a whole leads to ineffective solutions and policy. Yeah, absolutely. And and added to this idea you're saying about gender is, again, if we go back to the reason I started thinking about the book, this idea of just focusing on wartime rape and sexual violence. If you, if we do that, if we continue to just look at that form of gender-based violence, just looking at this example of climate change, you really narrow the diagnostic framework. Whereas if you start to sort of look at structural examples of gender-based violence, so my example of, you know, coerced sexual activities, that then leads you to open up the analysis and consider things like climate change and extreme weather events such as droughts that you're broadening what you're the examples that you're looking at so you're not just narrowly focusing on two elements you're kind of including elements and kind of variables that you wouldn't have thought of so I think it's yeah important to broaden what we mean by gender but certainly and this is why again I use the term violence is broaden what we mean by violence and, 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 you know, by including structural violence, I was able to add these kind of environmental elements to the discussion as well. And, you know, working on, on research around gender-based violence, conflict and war, reading survivor testimonies, first-hand accounts, looking at, looking at pictures, you know, researching traumatic events comes with its own challenges and own risks. How do you manage those as a researcher? Yeah, it is, it is hard, certainly for the chapter where I look at and, and draw on survivor testimonies from the Holocaust. I found that particularly difficult. For that, I had to, there's only one place that you can do this in this country where you can access the archive and you can watch the videos of survivor testimonies. And I found that particularly difficult. So I found that that was difficult for me to watch. So I thought it must have been difficult for survivors. And I suppose, that then makes me think that if they are sort of brave enough to share their stories and, and sort of be asked questions in that particular way, that any discomfort that I feel watching that is kind of secondary. And that's not to say that we shouldn't take our own feelings and responses um, into account. But I think I always try and remember what it must be like for the people who are, you know, answering questions about that. I try to move beyond any kind of sensationalist accounts of this type of violence and always base research on first-hand accounts or empirical research that has been carried out by NGOs who've been working with victims um, and survivors, however difficult that might be, again, to read about or to see these images. I think one of the things that I found most difficult when researching the book was about the responses that I came across, so other people's responses to this violence. As we said earlier, when these images of the sexual abuse and torture at Abu Ghraib surfaced, there was kind of initial shock and horror what had taken place. But not everybody did seem shocked and horrified. And I did find in my research that people hadn't been as universally shocked by these images. And I think perhaps, as I said earlier, one of the reasons for this is that people viewed this as this violence as a kind of just and necessary response to the threat posed by, you know, these dangerous, again, I'm using inverted commas, dangerous terrorists. I mean, for me, this kind of lack of shock and horror 
kind of sort of explains why some of these images have been appropriated and recontextualized in numerous ways. The most ex- obvious example is the doing a Lindy phenomenon. And this involves people posing like England does in one of the pictures. So the picture is the infamous picture of Lindy England, where she's either doing a thumbs up gesture or she's signalling that she's holding a pistol aimed at the penis of one of the um, hooded, naked Iraqi detainees at Abu Ghraib. And the kind of Lindy pose is actually included in the Urban Dictionary, and it's defined as the act of pointing and laughing at an unaware victim while holding a cigarette half-cocked in your mouth and then being photographed, much like Lindy England. I think one of the images that stood out for me was a young boy doing the image, and I just couldn't, trying to reconcile a young boy posing like Lindy England, I found that quite difficult, and I spend quite a bit of time, you know, talking about that. I found really difficult, you know, just like coming into contact with people's responses to some of these atrocities. It's another way that that violence, that incident, echoes out and is replicated. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how I don't think these images have the same ability to shock us, especially if you consider all of those people who have taken those pictures. I think there's some reference to it in a Simpsons episode as well. Mm. So I think, you know, based on that, I sort of felt like, yeah, it, 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 this, you know, compassion fatigue is a real phenomenon, especially if people are just, you know, uploading these images and... Because in the images as well, the people are smiling. They're kind of, they have this mocking look on their face. So it's all really playful, which just isn't what it is referring to. So where does research into gender-based violence in armed conflict and war, where should it go next? I think one of the things that I would like to see is more examples or interrogation into structural violences against men and boys. So in the examples that I look at, whilst I do look at sexual exploitation and abuse, in relation to boys and men, I have focused more on reproductive and genocidal violence. So I think there is definitely scope to consider structural violence against men and boys. There's definitely space for the development of research on climate insecurity and war and armed conflict. When I went to the American Society of Criminology conference last November, there were some really excellent sessions on what they were calling climate criminology. And so I think there's space for that to include, you know, the the link between climate insecurity and war and armed conflict. I myself, I'm going to, I have done it for another piece of work, but I'm going to look at it in more detail, this notion of transgenerational trauma and looking at experiences of children born from genocidal rape. Because one of the things that I've found actually in kind of starting to think about this particular area is that this idea of transgenerational trauma is something that has been dealt with quite a bit in popular culture. So one of the things that sort of I was thinking about when writing this that I recently watched the Watchmen TV show and in that there's lots of stuff about transgenerational trauma is about sort of inheriting legacy and unresolved trauma and so I I thought that was really interesting that we're seeing it in, in, in popular culture in that way but also one of the things that I've been listening to during this time is a podcast that unpacks Beyonce's Lemonade visual album and in that there's some really interesting things about again the legacy of trauma the legacy of slavery and racism and how this can be you know, this, how this is inherited and the ways in which people try and resist that trauma. I mean, obviously, I'm not equating 
these TV shows and these kind of albums with genocidal rape. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that we see these things in popular culture. They're things that people are familiar with. And so I think it's an important time to sort of draw people's attention to how it sort of plays out in the context of war and armed conflict and to start to think more about the experiences of children who have been born from genocidal rape. That was a fascinating discussion, though. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, Stacey, and thank you for taking me through your book. I really feel like I've got a lot to take away with me. If you'd like to read Stacey's book, you'll find a link to the openly available e-copy of the book in the show notes below. The book's been made open access courtesy of Knowledge Unlatched, who support developing open access and making scholarly content freely available to everyone. Please get in touch with us to let us know what topics you'd like to hear from us on the podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at EmeraldSock.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at hbedo4. 